Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back in the pulpit this morning. I just want to say a quick thank you for anyone who prayed for us last week while we were away at Snow Glow. Your prayers were greatly appreciated. We all made it back in one piece safely. It was a great weekend, and like I said, thank you for all your prayers for that weekend. It was wonderful to see the youth grow and to hear God's word proclaimed and to just grow in their relationship with one another. Today, we're going to be continuing our series in Acts. We're actually going to be closing out chapter 5 this week. We've spent the past three weeks looking at Acts chapter 5, and what we've seen as we've read through, studied chapter 5, is we've seen that the gospel continues to move forward. The church continues to grow despite opposition. Despite people trying to plan against it, the church continues to grow whether it's from people from within trying to lie and steal from the church, whether it's the opposition from the ruling party who wants to imprison the apostles for proclaiming the truth that Jesus is the Christ. We saw that in verse 18, and we saw that they were miraculously freed from the prison, and the angel told them to continue to go back in verse 20, to go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And we saw they were sent in for questioning and imprisoned for that. And out of the boldness the apostles had, they continued to preach the gospel. And as we'll see in today's passage, this this opposition intensifies towards the apostles. But despite that, despite those opposing the gospel, despite people growing more and more angry with the apostles, their fervor, their desire to serve their Lord and Savior, to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ does not waver. They meet the opposition and they continue more boldly and courageously to proclaim the truth. And there's nothing that brings the apostles more joy than it is to serve their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they'll do that no matter what people say or do to them. And that leads me to the main idea today which is this, following Jesus will bring suffering, but will also bring immense joy that will carry you through the suffering. Following Jesus will bring suffering, but will also bring immense joy that will carry you through the suffering. We are going to be in Acts chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. If you need a Bible, if you want to use the pew Bibles in front of you, you're more than welcome to do that. Those are our gifts to you. You can turn to page 19, 913. We'll start reading God's word. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thedius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer this honor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather as a church body, Lord, to sing songs of praise to you, to pray, to welcome and to fellowship with one another, Father. There's so many people in this world who don't have this opportunity, Lord, and we give you all the praise and glory for it, Father. Lord, as we open up your word, we pray that you are with us that you send your spirit to work within us, to convict us, to, to, to chisel away any areas that we refuse to give up to you, Father God. Lord, we pray that as we proclaim your word, Lord, that it's edifying to us, that it's encouraging, that it brings us joy, Father. Lord, we pray, pray that you be with me this morning. You help me to speak clearly, to speak boldly, Lord. Above all things, Lord, may you be glorified and magnified above me, Father. We pray for those who are in children's church right now, Lord. We pray for the teachers there, Father. We pray for for the truths that they will be learning this morning, Father. Be with the little ones, Lord. May the seeds start being planted now, Father. May we as their family, as the church body, continue to water their seeds. And may we see these children come to a saving faith, Father. Lord, we ask you to eliminate any distractions as we spend the next several moments in your word, Father. Thank you for this opportunity. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be glorifying to you and edifying to your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the third act, if you will, of the apostles before the Sanhedrin. As I mentioned last week, they were imprisoned for proclaiming the gospel and told specifically not to teach in Jesus' name. In Act 2, we see Peter's response in verse 29, where he says, we must obey God rather than man. And then he proceeds to proclaim the gospel to this council known as the Sanhedrin. And today we'll see their response. We'll see today is we'll see various different responses that people have to the gospel and to those who proclaim the gospel. And we see right there in verse 33 that, that, the, that the Sanhedrin, the council, was enraged. Which gets me to point number one, that people will respond to the gospel and those who proclaim it with anger. People will respond to the gospel and those who proclaim it with anger. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The day there being this same group who had been questioning the apostles known as the Sanhedrin. They were enraged. They, they were so angry. And really this word enraged, it does no justice to the Greek word that's here. Because it, it literally means that they were cut in half. They were so in half. They, that they were so filled with anger that they're being ripped apart from the inside, that they're having this visceral reaction to what Peter is telling them. As Eckhart Schnabel writes, he he means that this most likely means that there was a visible reaction to Peter's speech. 
that these men who this, the Sanhedrin is made up of 70 men, that they started to stand and perhaps they're turning red in the face and they're hurling insults at the apostles, shaking their fists at them. They're so angry at what they're being told. This, this word, this verb for enrage, it's the same verb that we come across in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, when that crowd was so enraged at Stephen while he's giving the gospel that they ground their teeth towards Stephen, we're told. And eventually, we know how that ends. They, they eventually stone Stephen to death. That's the anger here towards the gospel that we see. Right? They say, we need to put them. They wanted to kill them. People will respond to the gospel and to those who proclaim it with visceral anger. No one wants to see the gospel go forward. Right? When they see others trying to do work on behalf of the gospel, they will get angry. And it's true 2,000 years ago, and it's true here today as well. We have a brother here, I don't see him, but EC serves with Love Life Ministry, and they, he's a part of their sidewalk counseling team. And if you go up to him, he will tell you stories of the anger response they get when they go out to Planned Parenthood throughout the week, trying to share the gospel with these ladies or these families who are there to have an abortion. And the response they get from volunteers, not even the workers, people who are volunteering for this, the anger, they're trying to shut them out, they're hurling insults at them. It's still true today. People will respond to the gospel with anger. Oftentimes, maybe at your work or amongst your friends, this moment you try to sway the conversation towards anything religious or the gospel, or you say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, oftentimes you're meted with, oh, you're one of those people. It's still true today that people will respond to the gospel and those who proclaim it with anger. Sin has such a grip on this world that you're trying to give people hope. You're trying to share with them that there's more to this world than what they see, and their only response is to respond to you in anger. I don't want to hear that. That may work for you, but please stop talking to me. It was true then, and it's true today. People will respond to the gospel and those who proclaim it with anger. Point number two, people will respond to the gospel and those who proclaim it with dangerous hesitation. People will respond to the gospel and those who proclaim it with dangerous hesitation. We're introduced to a man in verse 34 by the name of Gamaliel who was a Pharisee, we're told. And we see the Pharisees made up part of this council. The other half of the council was known as the Sadducees. And so the Sanhedrin is made up of 70 men from these two different groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And really, these two groups of men could not be any different from one another. But the Sadducees, they're the ones who had control of the Sanhedrin. They were the ones who aligned themselves with Rome. They had the money. They had all the power. They controlled this council, the Sanhedrin, if you will. But the Pharisees, they were more popular amongst the people of Israel. They were considered to be traditionalists or, or purists regarding the law. So they had the respect of, of the people. And as John Polhill notes, the Pharisees did believe in the coming of the Messiah. They did believe in the resurrection, in life after death, where the Sadducees didn't believe 
that that was possible. And that's why they're growing so angry towards the apostles. It's this preaching, this idea of, of the resurrection of life after death. And as I mentioned, they were the ones who had control of this council, of the Sanhedrin. But when this man, who is a priest, and as we're told in verse 34, he's a teacher of the law, held in high honor by all the people. In other words, he was highly respected by all. And this man, Gamaliel, he was, a, he was given the title of rabbin, okay, which is our teacher. This was, title was only reserved for the more eminent teachers of Israel. And it's really only given to seven men. And he was the first one to receive. We're actually told in, in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, that this guy, Gamaliel, was Paul's teacher, that Paul was one of his students. And if you look into the history, he comes from a huge lineage of very popular and well-respected Pharisees. But this man stands up even though he doesn't have the power, even though he doesn't have much sway, he stands up and he addresses these 69 other men. And we know they listen because the apostles are removed from this council, from this trial, if you will, at his request. And he proceeds to warn them. He says, we need to pump the brakes here. Let's be a little bit more cautious. And he gives them these two examples of, of maybe let's consider these things before we act, right? And he gives us this man named Thutius who claimed to be somebody, which now that means he's more likely was claiming to be a prophet. He was making these claims about himself. And whatever the claims were made, he was able to amass a small following of about 400. And eventually he was killed and his followers scattered and never heard from again. And the same is true for this Judas the Galilean who was protesting the census, who also had this small following behind them. And when he was killed, they eventually scattered and were never heard from again. And he's using these stories because he wants the council to not come to any rash decisions. He's saying, let's slow down a bit. Before we, we decide that we're going to kill these men, let's, let's not wait. Let's think of this. Ultimately, he says, we don't want to be opposing God. And that's good advice. Overall, I think the advice that Gamaliel gives here is good advice. But my problem is I don't think he takes it far enough. He says, we don't want to oppose God. So let's just sit back. Let's let it play out. Let's see what happens. If this is of man, they're going to scatter and it's going to die out. And if it's of God, do we really want to oppose God? He just doesn't take it far enough because they have all the evidence they need. Instead, he probably could have said, you know what, let's look at all the evidence we have. The tomb is empty. The followers, this man died, and they're growing more. They're getting into the thousands and thousands of thousands. We've seen the miracles. How about we study our scriptures and see what we come up with this? That would have been good advice. They have all the evidence that they need. Instead of saying, let's consider this, let's wait against the scriptures, he says, let's, let's be cautious, let's slow down a bit, because we don't want to be on the wrong side of history here. That's basically what he's saying to them. But we've seen, we've seen through this book of Acts how this momentum is gaining movement. It keeps to grow, and his response is, let's not show our hand. Let's 
Wait and see. Let's hesitate here for a, di- for a little bit. And that's not a good response. It's not good enough to not be outward antagonistic towards Jesus or Christians. It's not enough to stand there on the day of judgment to look at Jesus on, in his eyes and say, you know what? I didn't follow you. I didn't quite make you Lord of my life. I heard the gospel, but I wasn't ready. It's not enough to say, Jesus, I didn't attack your followers. I was just indifferent. I was just hanging out in the back, just watching it all play out. But I wasn't plotting against you. Jesus is very clear in Matthew 12 30, 12, 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. So this idea of we can have some hesitation, that I can kind of play this role of neutrality. I'm just going to tote the line. I'm going to have one foot in, one foot out. I'm not going to say either thing against him. I'm not going to follow him. Hesitation, neutrality. Listen, neutrality, hesitation, it will condemn you. It does not save you. Maybe that's a better response to the gospel than anger. But being indifferent, being cautious or on defense, having a slight hesitation is not enough to save you. There's only one proper response to the gospel. And especially for us today, 2,000 plus years later, we've seen this movement. It has not died out. The apostles were murdered, they died, and this movement continued to grow. Some would say that it's even stronger today than it was back then. To be indifferent, to be hesitant when it comes to the gospel, that's not an option for us. You're either for Christ or you're against him. There is no middle ground. You don't say, I get to go to church on Sundays, but the rest of the week is mine. I get to do this, but Lord, I'll give you this little area. There is no neutrality. You're either for God or you're against him. Point number three, people will respond to the gospel and those who proclaim it by attacking them. People will respond to the gospel and those who proclaim it by attacking them. We see this in verse 40. After they considered the advice, it says, And then they called in the apostles. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This beating that the apostles received most likely was a flogging. Right, as John Pohill notes, that a flogging was a customary punishment used as a warning not to persist in this offense. It was used as a way to deter certain behaviors from people. It was used to embarrass, to dishonor these men who were doing these acts. So that's most likely what these apostles received. Based off Deuteronomy 25.3, we know that a flogging was a whipping. They would be whipped 40 times or 39 times because they didn't want to just reach that threshold. It's oftentimes Paul says he was ripped 40 minus one. And so there's beating, they're, they're hold there, they're, they're made their hands to be held to a pole, and then they're whipped 39 times. And this wasn't exactly the same punishment that Jesus received. 
right? Because his came at the hands of the Romans, and the Romans used a flagellum, which we, so when we were looking in Mark, we're, you know, we went over that where it was a piece of rod, and it was with several strips of leather at the end of it. And at the end of each leather, there was pieces of metal, sharp glass, stone, and they were used to really rip the flesh apart. And that was how the Romans would flog someone. But this whipping comes at the hand of Israel. So they didn't have the flagellum. They just had a leather, this leather strap that was attached to a rod. And it was three leather straps. And they're kind of bound together at the end. And that's what they're using to whip these apostles 39 times. And as one commentator noted, it would have been one-third of those whippings would have been to the front, to the chest area. And two-thirds of them would have been to the back. You can do the math. I'm not going to do that for you. Right? And this was used because they wanted to deter them. Stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And this is what's going to happen. And so they were whipped. And they were humiliated and embarrassed. That was the purpose of this. And we often see from the response from the apostles, it does the exact opposite. But it's true, brothers and sisters, do not be surprised when someone's anger towards you for sharing the truth, for proclaiming the gospel, turns towards physical or verbal attacks. Right? The world will hate us for our allegiance to Jesus. John was very clear with that in John 15, 8 through 20. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We read it in our scripture reading in a part of the Sermon of the Mount with the, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Time after time, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, lets us know that we will be attacked. We will, be, we will have to suffer for his namesake. And maybe it's not physical the way the apostles are, are experiencing it here, but at some point, you have to make a decision, and maybe someone will hurl insults at you. You might, have, you might lose your job as a result of your faith. You might lose relationships or family as a result of, of faith. People might come for your reputation. At some point, you will suffer for the sake of Christ. The question is not when, it's not if, but it's when. And how do you respond to that suffering? Do we run away from it? Or do we embrace it because we knew that it was coming? We can look at the apostles' response here, right? It gets me to point number four. The people respond to the gospel with saving conviction. People respond to the gospel with a saving conviction, verses 41 through 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer this honor for the name. And every day... In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They received these 39 whippings, these lashings. They're told not 
to teach in the name of Jesus. And what do they do the moment they leave? They begin to rejoice. They begin to worship God. They begin to praise God. Thank you, Lord, that I was able to suffer in the name of Jesus. What leads these men to do this? It's a saving. It's a strong conviction of what they're teaching. They know it to be true. Conviction is a strong persuasion or belief in something. It's to believe in something with certainty, with strong assurance. Usually someone who has a strong conviction, they don't budge no matter what happens. And this was true of the apostles. They were saved. They were witnesses to his death and his resurrection. And that leads to the saving conviction in Christ where they can praise God, give thanks to God. For suffering. They truly believed with everything inside them what they were teaching. And because of that, it brought them joy to suffer this honor for his name. For him, not for anything else. Realize this joy, this, the fact they rejoice in this joy that the apostles have, it's not because they were whipped. They're not enjoying that. They weren't masochists. They were beaten and dishonored for the name of Christ. And that is what brought them joy. Not the fact that they were beaten, period. It's because it's the why. They're not going out looking for it. There was, they, had tr- they had true, genuine joy in the things of God. They did not go looking for this. They're not saying we're going to go preach this truth because I want to be whipped. They're saying I have to preach this truth despite what's going to happen to me, despite what may come my way. I need to do this. I need to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to say is we don't go looking for suffering, right? Suffering will come to our front doors at some point. And at that point, we need to not cower or run away, but welcome it. But we don't go looking for it. There's a difference when you suffer because of your sin, because of your arrogance, or because of your pride, or you're suffering because of proclaiming the truths of Jesus Christ. We don't go out trying to antagonize people and then, look, we're suffering. But we don't run away from it when it comes to our door. We welcome it and we rejoice that we are counted as worthy to suffer this honor in the name of Jesus Christ. We take joy and pride in the work that God has called us to. We're called to just proclaim the truth, to make disciples of the nations no matter what and whatever comes our way we accept it because we know we are doing God's work and as I close today I want to ask those who are in here who aren't believers who haven't put their trust in Jesus Christ to consider what your response is to the gospel we saw today that there are various responses. But there's only one response. 
that will lead to the forgiveness of sins. There's only one response to the gospel that would lead to an everlasting life, and that is full submission to Jesus Christ by making him Lord over your life. That is to put your faith, that is to put your trust in the works of Christ. And we're going to see as we continue in the book of Acts, several more instances where people are suffering for Christ, where where they're giving their life for Christ. That is because they truly believed that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, and they understood what they were saved from and what they're saved to. They were, their response was to fully submit their lives to Jesus Christ. And that is the only proper response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To put your full faith and trust in Jesus. Any other response will condemn you. Anger, frustration, indifference, hesitation. I'm going to wait and see. I really enjoy what I'm doing in my life right now. And I I understand a little bit about this gospel, but I really don't want to give this up. That type of response will condemn you. None of us is perfect. I, I want you to consider the fact that you are not perfect. That you, no matter how you may feel about yourself, you have sinned against the God of this world. And because of that, your punishment for that sin is eternal damnation to spend the rest of eternity in hell. And the only thing that can pull you out of that, the only thing that can save you from that is the perfect work of Jesus Christ. What is that? That he left heaven, he came to this world through the virgin birth, took on our nature, still remained God, and he never once sinned, never once stumbled, faced the same type of hardships we did, faced the same temptations that you do every day, yet he never faltered, he never wavered, he never sinned, never thought about it. Instead, he just lived a perfect life. And then willingly, following the will of God, went to the cross and was beaten. His flesh ripped from his body. His blood spilt and hung on the cross and died there so that you could have your sins forgiven through his perfect sacrifice. That's the work of Jesus Christ. He then rose again three days later, and it's through that resurrection that we can have the full confidence and assurance that we will spend the rest of our lives after our time here on this earth with God in heaven. That is the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And the only proper response to that is to say, God, I pull my full trust in your son Jesus Christ and submit to him. And if you haven't done that, if you want to know what that looks like practically in your life, you want to consider those things, we would love to have a conversation with you. Anyone who was up here today would love to talk to you more about what it means to put your trust in the works of Jesus Christ. But the only response to that is to submit your life to him, not wait And I say, let me see how my life turns out, God, before I make this decision. The only response is full submission to Jesus Christ. And to my brothers and sisters, we ended our passage today with the apostles rejoicing that they were beaten and dishonored. 
Right? They continued, as we saw in verse 42, to teaching and preaching that Jesus as the Christ. They had true joy. They were more than willing, knowing that maybe we're going to go through this again, but we're not going to stop. They found true joy in the things of Christ. As followers of Jesus, our lives should be marked by our joy. It should be marked by the fact that we know that nothing goes to waste. No matter what we go through in life, the good, the bad, whatever it may be, we know that none of it gets wasted by our God and that he will use even the bad for his good. And so there's not anything that's wasted and we can stand with full confidence and know I can have full joy in the fact that I know my Lord will use me and my situations for his greater good. Following Jesus is expressed in our joys, as Edward Schnarber writes, the joy of believers in Jesus is not a psychological disposition that some have and some don't, but a disposition granted by the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit. It is an integral part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is a part of the growth in faith, and it is a condition that should characterize all believers all the time. We should be marked by our joy. We should be overflowing with joy. Maybe you're thinking, Pastor Ricardo, that's difficult. Life is really hard right now. There's certain things happening that you don't know that makes it hard for me to express this type of joy. I want to give you guys some, some, some pointers, some help on how we can cultivate this joy in our lives. First, it's realizing that joy is a gift from God, that we can, in prayer, come before the Lord of this universe and pray to give us joy. We have to be asking. It's an attitude that we need to be looking for when it comes to our relationship with Christ. Lord, help me to see the joy in this. Help me to have joy. Help me to rejoice in this very moment. God, I'm praying for this. Another way that we can cultivate joy is by abiding in Christ. That's what the apostles did. No matter what they were going through, they were going to remain in Christ. We see this in John 15, verses 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Our joy will be full when we start to abide, to remain in Christ. Another way to produce, if you will, cultivate joy is to find joy in the things of God. Find true joy in the gospel. The fact that we have been saved, the fact that our sins have been forgiven, no matter what we do, we know with the full assurance we have been forgiven and we will see Christ at the end and be judged righteous because of his righteousness being poured on us. We need to find joy in that. That should excite us. The gospel should excite Christians more than anything in this world. We should find true joy in the gospel. Find joy in Christian fellowship. 
all the way back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We're told that the apostles, these new believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' preaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted to live together. Right? We're told they were going from house to house, proclaiming the truths of Jesus Christ. We're not told exactly how many apostles were beaten, were put in prison. It could have been all of them. But we do know for a fact that it wasn't just one of them. They were doing this together. And maybe that's where they were able to encourage one another, to keep pushing each other forward. Let's not give up despite what's going on. We're in this together. They were experiencing this together, and that perhaps would help them find joy in the midst of suffering. So if we want to experience this, this everlasting joy, this abundance of joy in our life, we must remain in Christian community. Understand this, the quickest way to lose your joy in this life is to pull away from your godly brothers and sisters in Christ. To decide, I just have to deal with this on my own. I don't need anyone else. No one's going to understand what I'm going through. That is the quickest way to lose your joy. We must remain in godly community. We must share our hurts and pains with one another. We must encourage, hold each other accountable. That's why the author of Hebrew writes in, in Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Be involved in Christian community. Live out the one another's in the scriptures. That's how you produce joy in your life. When you know you can call or text a brother or sister in Christ and they, were, they can be right there for you. They will say a prayer for you. They will help however they can. We remain, we are given joy. We can have joy in our life if we remain in godly community. Last one, you find joy in Christian service, in doing the work of Christ. How many times... I've heard of people who they've been having a really bad day, but the moment they start having gospel conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ, that pain, that suffering is lifted, and they've, they've, they have this newfound joy by the simple fact of speaking about the truths of the Scriptures. How many people come back from missionary trips changed because of the joy that they get from doing the work of God? Find joy in Christian service. Get plugged in. Be a part of a ministry. Share, evangelize, pray for one another, but do the work. We cultivate this joy in our lives by remaining in Christ, understanding that it is in him, not us, not our own work, but it is through Christ that we can abide in the midst of suffering, that we can continue to live out our faith and our salvation with fear and trembling. We must remain in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy and grace in our lives, Father. That you are the one who holds on to us, Father. That you give us everything we need in 
your word and in your people, Father God. That we're not going through this life alone on ourselves, Father, but we've been given brothers and sisters. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given your word to carry us through, to help us to persevere through hardships and suffering, Father. So, Lord, when those things come our way, when people come and want to hurl insults, when the opportunity to possibly lose relationships or jobs or whatever it may be comes our way, Lord, may we not budge. May we always, no matter what, choose Christ above everything else in this world, Father. Give us the power. Give us the boldness and courage to do so, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. And his people said, Amen.